This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, corruption and mind alteration, and sexist attitudes and stereotypes. The views of the characters do not reflect the views of the author. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 282. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 23 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Danny Shirabi went out on a date with Jared Tamlin, the latent telepath whom he had met at a club after being temporarily transformed into an androgyne. Since Daniel is trying to decide whether to take the curse for real, he needs to figure out whether he can adapt to having a female body and having sex with men. Jared was a convenient test case, and as a fellow low-powered telepath on the outs with the collective, he's someone Danny can identify with. The date went well, even after Danny confessed to being an androgyne, but Danny revealed to Jared a little more about his personal life than he'd planned to. He ended up telling Jared about Rebecca, and how he still loves her, but she's pregnant with someone else's kid. Jared and Danny had a moment of intense connection over the idea of being pitied by their fellow sighs, of being stuck in a world where nobody wants you. That moment of bonding led Danny to throw caution to the wind, to stop second-guessing his own motives and just act. He leaned in and kissed Jared. As soon as their lips touched, Danny's thoughts experienced an abrupt and drastic realignment. Danny's gender identity suddenly shifted from male to female. Instead of being a he in a female body, Danny was now she. An immediate surge of arousal also flowed through her, a desperate need for sex with Jared. They quickly fled the restaurant, making out in the lift all the way down to the parking garage. Once they got to Jared's skimmer, though, he strapped her into her seat and refused to take things any further. He was convinced that Danny was drunk, so her ability to give consent was clearly impaired. He wasn't about to take advantage of that. The next morning, Danny couldn't explain her own actions to herself. It was like someone had flipped a switch inside of her, taking her from nervous indecision to wanton need in a matter of seconds. That wasn't normal not even for the famously libidinous androgynes. Confused and alone, Danny closed her eyes and thought about Rebecca. For the first time since taking Ava's potion, Danny found that she was able to shift back into Daniel's form. 
Now thinking of himself as himself again, Daniel got dressed and called Evan Selindy. Evan was disturbed when he heard about the sudden change that had come over Danny, and he agreed to meet Daniel at the magic shop where he bought the potion. Hopefully, the wizard Artax will be able to help them get to the bottom of things. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 23 Daniel was already waiting for Evan outside Spells for You when the Androgyne arrived at five minutes to noon. Even on a Sunday morning, Evan was dressed to impress. His white sport coat shone brilliantly in the midday sun, and the collarless red shirt underneath it looked like it had come straight from the cleaners. Even his jeans looked classy on him. His violet eyes were tight with worry as he approached. "'Is he there yet?' he asked. Daniel gestured at one of the signs in the window, which had "'Closed for Business' printed in bright orange letters on a black field. Beneath this, someone had written in silver permanent marker, This means you, Callie. Friendly, Daniel said. Would that be our Callie by any chance? Girl never could keep to a regular schedule, Evan said. Always waking people up at insane hours to help with bizarre problems. You'd get along famously, I think. Very funny. Are you going to knock or shall I? Best be me. The last thing we need is you starting off on the wrong foot with him. At that moment, the sign flipped over on its own, showing more orange text that said, The wizard is in. There was a clack as the bolts on the glass double doors released themselves, followed by a sparkle of golden light that Daniel suspected was a sign of magic wards disengaging. One of the doors swung inward, and there was a jangling noise as it struck the chain of bells hanging just inside. A wizened old man with a long and fluffy white beard appeared from behind one of the store shelves. He cinched his star-spangled blue bathrobe more tightly around his waist, then pulled out an enormous cone-shaped hat covered with astrological symbols and settled it on top of his woolly head. He adjusted his pince-nez and gestured to them irritably. "'Well, come on, then,' he said. "'What do you need, an engraved invitation?' Daniel hurried inside, with Evan following behind him. "'Sorry,' he said, bowing to the old man in greeting. "'We weren't sure if you were in yet. I'm—' "'You are Daniel Sharabi, sometimes known as Danny Sharabi, the telepath who will sacrifice anything for the love of Rebecca Brower,' the wizard said. "'And you are here because you believe that you have been ensorcelled by something other than my potion.' Daniel gaped. He shot an accusing look at Evan, but the androgyne held up his hands and shook his head. Daniel looked back at the old man. How did you know that? The old man glared at him from beneath bushy brows, then pointed to a large wooden sign on the shop wall behind him. It said, Because I'm a wizard, that's how. Try to keep up, Master Shrobby. He turned and walked toward the back of the shop, gesturing for them to follow. Daniel looked at Evan, who shrugged. 
I told you he was a cranky git, he whispered. Ever the charmer, Master Selindy, Artax called back. Why don't you do us all a favor and hand the reins over to Mistress Ava? I dare say it would improve the scenery for all of us. Evan shook his head and followed the wizard, and Daniel went with him. She still thinks you're a dirty old man, Artax, Evan said. Artax laughed, a dry cackle that made the hairs on the back of Daniel's neck stand on end. Absolutely. Haven't you ever heard that the good die young boy? Personally, I intend to live forever. They came to the back of the shop, where a long wooden counter was covered with alchemical equipment. Behind it was a doorway to a storeroom. Artax gestured for them to remain where they were, then vanished inside for a long moment, before returning with a pair of goggles, two cheap white filter masks, and a small amber glass jar. The wizard put on the goggles and one of the masks, then handed the other to Evan, who quickly put it on. "'This may tingle a little,' Artax said, unscrewing the cap on the jar. Daniel leaned forward to try to see what was in the jar. "'Why, what is—' "'Ah!' The old man tossed the contents of the jar in Daniel's face, releasing a cloud of glittering orange dust. The particles began glowing almost immediately— then flew into Daniel's open nose and mouth like a swarm of unusually curious gnats. Daniel coughed and gagged as a prickling, tingling sensation filled his lungs, then gradually settled itself inside his head. What in the hells was that? he demanded. Artax peered up at him through the goggles, which were now glowing the same shade of orange as the dust. Enchantment tracers, Master Shirabi, he said grandly. Think of them as a barium milkshake for the mind. If anyone has altered your thoughts through the use of magic, these little wonders will make the changes stand out for easier examination. Oh. Daniel shifted his weight from one foot to the other, watching as the little wizard walked around him and examined him from all sides. Hmm, the wizard said. What? What is it? Artax ignored him. Interesting. Would you mind changing back into female form, Master Shrabi? Um, Daniel looked over at Evan. Here? Yes, boy, here, now, before the tracers fade out. But my clothes... Oh, stars above, Artax muttered. He pulled out a wand and gestured at Daniel, showering his clothes in a brief spray of white light. I've just put an auto-fit enchantment on your clothes. Now change, boy. Daniel gulped and closed his eyes, thinking hard about how he wanted very much to become Danny before the wizard got any more upset with him. The shifting began almost immediately, and in less than ten seconds Danny stood there in Daniel's place, her body shivering with the after-effects of the rapid transformation. Very nice, Artax said approvingly reaching up to run a finger over one of Danny's hairless cheeks. Some of my best work, if I do say so myself. You want to check my teeth, too? Danny muttered. I'm sure we could put your mouth to any number of fine uses, Miss Shirabi, but time presses, so we'll have to settle for one. Master Selindi, if you would be so kind as to kiss our newly minted maiden. Danny took a step back. Excuse me? Don't be obtuse, girl, Artax snarled. 
How do you expect to find out if you're ensorcelled without a little experimentation? Danny turned to find Evan right in front of her. He had already pulled off the breather mask and now wore an awkward smile instead. You really do look fabulous, Danny, he said. Danny rolled her eyes and sighed. All right, fine. Come here. She put her arms around Evan's neck and pressed her lips to his. The kiss was brief, chaste, and utterly failed to cause her world to explode with the power of a thousand suns. Artax snorted. You call that a kiss? Again, like you mean it. Danny and Evan looked at each other helplessly and shrugged. The second kiss was longer, and carried a small spark of what Danny had felt when she kissed Ava. When they parted, though, Danny's mind was still clear. She felt a little flushed, but that was due at least as much to her embarrassment as it was to any attraction between her and Evan. Humph, Artax said. He pulled off the goggles and the breather mask and scowled up at Danny. Well? she asked. Nothing, the wizard said. Apart from the pseudo-curse, your mind shows no evidence of magical tampering. Danny stared at him. Are you... She had been about to ask, are you sure? But the old man's expression stopped her cold. Instead, she asked, what about telepathy? Could you see it if a teep messed with my head? Artax smirked. I thought you might ask about that, he said, nodding. You realize, of course, that magic and psionics don't normally interact. A spell ward can't block a telepath's powers, for instance, and an esper can't sense magical fields. Danny nodded. But there are exceptions, right? The elders taught us mind shields that they said would block out mind-reading spells. I'm sure they did. Magic and psi interaction isn't impossible, it's just complicated. Luckily for you, I have been working on exactly this problem for a while now. Come on in the back room. The wizard led them through a storeroom that was easily the size of a large warehouse. A seemingly endless array of long metal shelves rose ten meters from floor to ceiling, stocked with boxes and crates labeled in dozens of different languages, including Elvish, Yamatoan, and something that Danny suspected was Draconic. Here and there, Danny saw tall, wheeled staircases, like the ones seen in larger libraries, as well as a forklift that had a large array of crystals and runes where the driver's seat should have been. Artax took them to a small office in the back left corner of the warehouse. Its plain white walls and pressboard furniture seemed more suited to a cheap home office than the inner sanctum of a master wizard. The only decorations on the wall were a pinup calendar from a famous men's magazine and a large clock in the shape of a black and white cat. The cat's tail formed the pendulum of the clock, and its large cartoon eyes moved back and forth across the room in time with the tail. Danny wasn't sure if she had seen anything quite so tacky before in her life, and that included Artax's hat and Nathan's bust of Tiffany Angel. Here we are, Artax said, gesturing at a plastic chair in front of a rectangular table. Have a seat, girl. While Danny did as instructed, Artax gestured with his wand and muttered something in a language she didn't recognize. From the opposite side of the office, a huge metal contraption rose off of its shelf 
and floated over to the table, coming to rest in front of Danny. It looked a little bit like the machines used to take wraparound x-rays at the dentist's office, if such a device had been built by a sadistic Daedra with a love for crystals, vacuum tubes, and leather straps. What do I do with this? Danny asked. Artax rolled his eyes. Stick your head in it, of course. He gestured to a vaguely helmet-shaped portion of the device. Awkwardly, Danny leaned forward and put her head inside, placing her eyes over the two rubber eye cups and bracing her forehead against a leather strap. Immediately, other straps tightened around her head and neck, holding her firmly in place. Comfy? Evan asked. Oh, it's lovely, Danny said sourly. Why don't we have you try it next, just for giggles? Quiet, both of you. Artax fluttered around the machine, adjusting knobs and dials and flicking switches. After a minute or two, he was apparently satisfied, because Danny could no longer hear him or sense him nearby. There was nothing to look at inside the eye cups, except for darkness and the vague, hallucinatory patterns that the eyes conjure for themselves when they are deprived of light. All right, let's try it. Evan, clear out. This is all experimental magitech, so I don't want you to get too close and foul something up. Ready, Danny? Danny took a deep breath. As ready as I'll ever be. In four, three, two, one. A kaleidoscope of light exploded across Danny's vision. She felt something inside her mind. Not a telepathic presence, exactly, but something more alien and impersonal. It scurried through her thoughts like a large metal insect with a built-in camera, taking snapshots and sending them back out of her head down a long wire connected to its abdomen. It seemed drawn to traumatic and unusual memories, including her date with Jared and the disaster at the Skyport. But rather than looking at the remembered images themselves, it seemed to be examining the psychological foundations in which the memories were anchored. Danny thought of an engineer examining a damaged building, looking for cracks in the load-bearing walls, so he could decide whether to repair the structure or rebuild from scratch. The process seemed to take forever. Finally, the lights went out, the crawling sensation in her head ceased, and the straps released their hold on Danny's head. She pulled herself out of the device and looked up at Artax, who was seated at his desk and studying a set of incomprehensible-looking data on his computer. "'Well, what do you see?' Danny asked, nearly breathless with anticipation. Artax frowned and paged through a few more screens full of results. "'Nothing,' he said. Danny blinked. "'What?' "'Nothing out of the ordinary, I should say. Telepathic gestalts seem to leave a mark on the psyche,' but that's hardly unexpected, and usually isn't invasive. The sort of radical personality shift that you described would leave big, noticeable scars if it were done telepathically. You can't make a change that big without causing damage unless you do it slowly and carefully, like the therapists who rebuild the minds of the criminally insane. Visited any mental hospitals lately? Evan asked. Danny shot him a dirty look. This doesn't make any sense, she said, looking back at Artax. Please, sir, I'm not trying to contradict you, but I know what I felt. 
If it's not magic and it's not telepathy, what could do that to me? Artax got up from his chair, came around the desk and leaned back against it, stroking his beard thoughtfully. You said that the key thing that was different was the desire, yes? You still had the same thoughts, but they weren't important because your desires had changed. Danny nodded. There is a theory, a hypothesis, really, that desire stems from three sources. Artax lifted a finger. The first is what we call the animal mind, or the biological body. These sorts of desires are driven by basic biological imperatives. Your body needs energy, so you feel hunger. Your blood's getting too thick, so you feel thirsty. You need to reproduce, so you feel horny. Simple hindbrain stuff. The animal mind doesn't care how its needs get met, as long as they're met quickly. Got it, Danny said. This was all familiar territory, at least so far. Artax raised a second finger. The second source of desire is the conscious mind. These are the desires that stem from your long-term goals, complicated objectives that the animal mind doesn't have the brains to think about. You want to make good money and have a satisfying career, so you feel a desire to go to university. You want your children to be taken care of, so you desire a spouse whom you enjoy living with and whom you know is responsible. Incidentally, this is also where desires come from that are motivated by your experiences. If you've ever been mugged, you might feel a very strong desire to buy a gun or learn how to fight, so you can protect yourself if it ever happens again. And all of that happens in the cerebral cortex, Danny put in. Exactly. Complicated thoughts like those require complicated brain space to work in. A rat can't feel those kinds of desires, because it doesn't have the framework to even come up with them. He held up his third finger. But the third class of desire is the kind for which no biological or conscious motivator can be determined. Danny frowned. Like what? Surely every desire has to come down to a combination of your biological needs or your conscious needs. Studies with twins tell us otherwise, Artax said. Two people, genetically identical, raised in the same home, often treated as if they were interchangeable because the damned fool parents don't know any better. So why does one decide to be a doctor while the other wants to be an astronaut? Why does one love Pyralian food while the other can't stand it? Why does one love the color orange, and the other one won't have orange anywhere in his house? These aren't choices where one is notably better or worse than the other. So why do the twins choose differently? Danny thought about that. Maybe just a desire to be different from each other? Maybe subconsciously they have a biological need to be recognized as distinct people. Maybe that will improve their odds of reproductive success if they can make themselves unique from each other. Maybe, Artax allowed. Or maybe there are needs inside of us that are deeper than achieving goals or satisfying our biological cravings. Why do people create art? Why invent music? Why do people feel the need to worship something, be it a celebrity, or a dryad, or an unseen creator? Danny had wondered about that one for years, and she still didn't feel any closer to an answer. Artax seemed to read that in her eyes. That's the crux of the hypothesis. There are desires that come from neither the hindbrain nor the conscious mind, 
but from the spark of individuality that resides inside each one of us and makes us unique. These are the desires of the spiritual mind, the desires of the soul. Danny sat back in her chair. It's an interesting thought, I'll grant you. But what does it have to do with me? My reactions to Jared seem to be pretty hindbrain-oriented. But see, that's the thing, Artax said, pointing at her. If someone had just screwed with your libido, you would have had the same reaction to Evan. You didn't, and the enchantment tracers showed no signs of your biological impulses being manipulated. Likewise, the cerebral scanner showed no evidence of changes to your conscious thought patterns. He tugged on a lock of his hair, twisting it around his finger. No, I think that whatever happened to you was a change at the level of the soul. A chill ran down Danny's spine at those words. But who would want to change my soul? Artax raised one bushy eyebrow. That's a good question. A better question is, who could? Danny and Evan exchanged a look. Of course, it might not be a person at all, Artax said. It might be some sort of natural response to what you've been going through. The most useful lore on the nature of the soul was done by the necromancers, and most of it was lost ten thousand years ago. The field has hardly been touched ever since, and even someone like Richter or Talia or Agemnos probably doesn't know the tenth part of what there is to know about such things. We know that the soul is an organic thing. You can share pieces of it with another, lose part of it, grow it back again. But we can't do much in the way of analyzing it, and we can't interview it except through the filter of the conscious mind, because the soul on its own doesn't have a brain to think with. So what are you saying? Danny asked, frowning. That my soul decided to turn me into a raving slut when Jared kissed me? Artax made a non-committal grunt. You've certainly put yourself under an amazing amount of pressure to conform to the Collective's way of doing things. Maybe it's possible that you have a soul-deep need for belonging that's so intense that it drove your breeding instincts into full thrust when you met a man you could actually have sex with. Danny buried her head in her hands. In other words, I'm a slut. It wasn't a pleasant thought, and tears came to her eyes just from considering it. All this time I thought I was doing everything for Rebecca, she thought, and apparently I just want to get fucked. Artax offered her a handkerchief. Gods, he is old. Who uses handkerchiefs anymore? She dabbed her eyes and blew her nose. If I were you, Miss Shrabi, he said quietly, I would pray that there's nothing more to it than that. Pray to whatever gods you serve that in your heart of hearts you really are a raving slut, because the alternative explanation is that there is someone out there with the power to change people's souls, to change the deepest desires of their hearts without leaving a trace of magical or telepathic evidence. He looked at each of them, his expression dour. I don't know about you, but I'd rather deal with being a slut than have a world with a monster like that living in it. And that's the end of chapter 23. Come back next time 
when Danny makes a pivotal decision about her future, and the Summer Cell gets some help from Elder Bakhtivar. Charles Baudelaire said, Inspiration comes of working every day. So, let's see what inspirations have struck me this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of March 27th through April 2nd. I wrote 4,361 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 646 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 348 days without breaking my chain. Looking back on the month of March, I wrote a total of 13,470 words in 23 days, averaging 540 words per day. That ranks 46th out of 71 months since I started this podcast. I spent 19.75 hours writing in March. Compared to February, my word count decreased by 27%, and my writing time decreased by 32%. I fell one day short of my goal of writing on at least 24 days in every month, the first time I've missed that goal since September. This week was a lot of slow, steady work on my Natasha prequel story, Learning the Ropes. For the first half of the week, I was working on the sex scene at the heart of the story, which involves Natasha, a sensualist named Samar, and Russo, the fellow soldier who brought them together. I'd had an idea tickling the back of my mind about Russo for the last couple of weeks, a motivation that would explain why she singled out Natasha and introduced her to the world of Diaz's power exchange. It was a pretty big change from my original plan for the character, but it was an idea that felt like it had been foreshadowing itself through much of what I had written over the last month. I finally decided to just go for it, even though it wasn't in the outline. Most of my best ideas have happened that way, as long-time listeners of this show will remember. The story started flowing much more readily after that decision, and now that I'm past the sex scene and into the falling action, I'm finding myself eager for each new session, so I can explore how this twist has complicated the characters and their relationship. I'm sure that I'm going to have to go back to the beginning of this story when it's done and make it look like I knew what I was doing, but that's okay. For now, it just feels good to have the words flowing smoothly again. The story is now about 10,700 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi! If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.